I was going to be able to hang out with CEOs running multi-hundred million dollar businesses. I was going to have access to the top level guys of a $2.6 billion PE fund and see how they manage their businesses. And so for the knowledge and for the safety and also somewhat for the money, because they did make me a very good offer. I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. We've got a really good one for you today. Two quick news items. Tomorrow, the boss man and myself are sitting down to do a long-form Q&A episode. I don't even know if we're going to be able to get to everything in just one episode. We appreciate your amazing questions. Uh, you've emailed them to me at dan at tropicalmba.com. Keep them coming. We'll keep the episodes coming. One more piece of news. I keep saying I'm going to record this podcast earlier in the week, but here I am again at the very last minute in part because we launched our October event, DCBKK, which we sometimes talk about on this show. It is by far the most interest we have ever seen in the event. We've been so busy. Um, it's been super exciting. I'm so excited to go back to DCBKK this October. If you've got questions about that event, sometime in the summer, we'll have either a coda or a special episode about that. And speaking of events and meeting people in person, Today's guest is incredibly helpful and generous with his entrepreneurial wisdom, and I hope you feel that here today. He has one of the most diverse entrepreneurial careers I know. He set up agencies, he's grown software as a service products, and most recently, as in part as a thanks to the exposure he got through his agency, he's taken over as a turnaround CEO for a healthcare tech company on behalf of the private equity group that bought it. So pretty cool stuff. And if after hearing all that, you'd imagine that you wouldn't have enough time to do anything else, well, you're wrong because Jason Long not only gave an amazing presentation at our DC Playa event recently, but is well known in our online community as the DC, as someone who's always willing to help you with your business challenges. In... 2009, I got into a really horrible car accident. A really, really horrible. I almost died. I was in a coma. I was in a hospital for roughly six months. I was in a wheelchair for the better part of a year. I had brain damage. I had moderate brain damage. It caused me a lot of problems. I went through a horrible, horrible time in my life. And when it's one thing to say, I know that one day I'm going to die. It's another thing to sit down and stare it in the face for a few weeks and have to deal with the idea that you're going to, you might die today. And once you've been through that, once you had that experience, you realize how valuable every single day is. And you realize how really critically important it is to help the people around you and to have good relationships and to just generally be a good person. Before we dig into your story, I'm curious as to what you think about your reputation as the guy who is going out of his way to help people all the time and how that came about. Because 
know, you've had a lot of successes over the years and you're very busy right now with a ton of employees. So how does that square that you're low on time, but high on willingness to help others? I had so many years of failures. Like, it's really easy to take a look now and go like, oh, yeah, that guy's so successful. He's running all these businesses. Everything is looking so good. But it was not like this for most of my career. Throughout most of that time, if I had had somebody to say, hey, do it like this. Let me walk you through how to do this. It would have made a huge difference. And that was actually joining the DC. Like, the, I remember my very first DC meeting. I had a, se- a series of people step up and say, here's how to do it. Here's what you're missing. And I always knew that if, if I'd had that early on, I would have been so much more successful so much earlier. And so when anybody wants help with things, I'm always so excited to help them and help them avoid the years of failure that I had. The other side of it is I really enjoy this stuff. Like, I love talking about business. Like, if you, you want to sit down and talk about business, I'll talk about business with you all day long. Solving problems, like, that's, I love that stuff. When I was only running an agency, I used to tell people, I have tried every single possible way to burn down an agency. And if, if there's a way to, to burn it down, like, I promise, I know it. And same thing with the SaaS business. I have tried every way possible to screw up a SaaS business. So it's really easy for me to see after all of these mistakes where people are making mistakes and how to avoid them. So let's get into his story. We joined Jason, who a few years previously had, as many of us do, teamed up with a partner to start an agency, which is just about to be hit by the dreaded GFC. So in 2008, the market crashed and we were not very well diversified. We had created within that amount of time from around 2002, which was the time we spun off and started Jage Media Group until 2007, 2008, we had put together a company of 30 full-time people and it just crashed and burned. It was terrible. It was, um, it was all of the work I had done for the last like six years crumbling to the ground around me. We were doing a lot, of, a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising at the time. When things were just about to crash or just starting to crash, our sales went up. They spiked because everyone was worried about what was going to happen. And, they, and so they started putting money into advertising. But then as soon as, as people realized, like, this is going to be a more drawn out thing, they cut everything. All of our retainer clients canceled their retainers, every single one of them. So we went three months with no money and a 30-man full-time team. And in three months, I had to fire almost everybody. I took it down to eight full-time pretty quickly. We had to leave our office in the middle of the night. The landlord would not negotiate with us at all. We told him, we haven't had any business. Everything is crashing. And he's like, I don't care. And that night, we went and got all of our stuff out of the office like at midnight and moved it into a house that I had bought when times were good which is also not legal in the U.S. Like in that area, you can't move a business into a residential house. But I was like, well, too late. (laughs) Our remaining eight-person team into that house, we kept trying and kept trying, but eventually we couldn't support the eight people either. We burned through all of our padding, all of our money in the bank. We had nothing left. And finally, we had to take it down to just three people. And we had to, to start all over. It was traumatizing, man. Just seeing everything crumble and also going, not making any money is really hard. When you're used to making at least okay money, I remember that year, I think I made less than $10,000 that year. I mean, it went from doing great to nothing. And then the following year, I got into that car accident. 
What was your asset? A lot of us are on the fifth year of running an agency. You said you bought a house. I mean, did you have an asset from the agency that you could then carry on into the future? That was really the main thing is I bought a house and paid it off. I didn't really have a lot of other assets. I wish I had had the knowledge that you and the DC have brought me back then because I would have done things so differently. How so? What are a few things you might have done differently? I would have put more money into real estate. I would have put more money into other assets. I would have I would have put money away. I was kind of young and kind of stupid. I just kind of spent most of my money. Nice. Well, that's the kind of thing you do when you're 25 years old, I guess. Well, and also I'm curious about that business asset too, because, you know, a lot of us, one of our frustrations with agencies typically is, you know, I remember also working at an agency during the crash and you kind of look around and it's like, we don't really own anything. Like none of our products are our own. Like every single day we come to work and build products for our clients. And then we buy products from contractors and we're just the middleman. And so if those two sides don't want to talk anymore, there's no conversation for us to have. Around the time the the market was crashing, I started my first, sorry, my first SaaS business because I knew I needed to have something different. And when the market crashed, and went through all of that, those horrible experiences. I realized I never wanted that to happen again. I never, ever wanted to be so poorly diversified that when, when everything crashed, I was just done. And so this is what drove me to building all of these other businesses, 10 more businesses that are all over the place. The name of my holdings company is Tangent Solutions because everything is kind of tangential, but it doesn't really do the same thing. And now I have owned businesses and everything from agriculture to development tools, to real estate, to like surveying, you know, all over the place. And it was really because I wanted to be really well diversified and have assets all over the place. And it may or may not have been a good idea in that the people I know that have been really, really successful were really successful in one area. I have a very well diversified portfolio that brings me money from a lot of different areas, but I don't have one thing that's been super successful. It's been a 10 year journey of escaping an agency. And it wasn't really until I stepped out into this portfolio company, this private equity portfolio company, that I 100% stepped out of my that main agency. What in your view are the building blocks of a good business idea? Because it sounds like you've had a lot. Something that brings a lot of value to people, be it a business or to, to consumers. Something that has easy distribution. This is actually one of the things that I talk a lot about is that if you want to have a business that takes off, you have to have good distribution. You have to have channels that are already built or you have to have channels that are very easy to access, preferably channels that are already built. You have to have something that you don't have to, but it's easier to have something that's simple. What's an example of a good distribution channel that you've seen? It can be everything from a great network to a great podcast to knowing somebody. There's a philosophy of the unfair advantage. There was a private equity guy I talked to a while back and he's like, what is your unfair advantage? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, where can you win that nobody else can win? And he gave a great example he started a record label. And this was a guy that didn't know anything about music. And I said, how the hell did you start a record label? And he said, well, two of my best friends are Jay-Z and Beyonce. And they told me if I started this record label in this area, 
doing this thing in this particular area, they would promote it all day long. And their entire PR machine promoted it for two weeks straight. And the first year we did 50 million. That's an unfair advantage. And so a lot of times distribution is that unfair. If you have that unfair advantage in distribution, that's how you're going to win. The 50 million number and Jay-Z may be not relatable, but the actual chart of how that relation unfolds is super relatable. And it's a lot easier to ask that question, like, who are my Jay-Z and who are my Beyonce, rather than, what am I good at? What should I build? Those are harder questions to answer. Who's my Jay-Z? Who's my Beyonce? Those are relatively easy questions to answer. Okay, so other ways to find distribution. That was great. What I tell people starting a business is, what is the thing that would be an unfair advantage that would make your business super successful? Once again, very often this is a distribution question. But what is that thing? And, and I have them list out, like, here are the top 10 things that would make my business super successful overnight. And I say, okay, cool. Figure out how to get that thing. If the answer is knowing the CEO of IBM, and that would be the thing, having him or her as your good friend, cool. Where do they live? How do you meet them? How do you get to know them? Figure that question out, and you can figure out the solution to your problem. You mentioned simplicity. Yeah. One of the things I see people do a lot, especially when they're first getting started, is make things way too complicated. Too complicated of sales structures, too complicated applications, or I, I work a lot in the SaaS world. So funded entrepreneurs come to me all the time with these very complicated things. And what I tell them is, don't start off by building a platform. Build a tool. Something that accomplishes just one thing that people are having a hard time with. Very often they have great ideas and they build things more and more on top of that great idea. And they need to go back and distill things down into the most simple version of that idea and do that thing. Simplicity is absolutely critical. Do just a tool, not a platform. Why is it so important? Because the bigger your idea, the more money it costs, the bigger the budget you need. If you wanna do something that is really huge, you got to go and raise a pile of money. If you want to bootstrap something, you're not going to do something this huge. Like, it's just not going to happen most of the time. But every now and then there's people that are very successful. And, but most of the time, if you're very successful, if it's something complicated right out the gate, you're just lucky. People underestimate how much it costs to build software. Yeah, a lot. How much does it cost to build a SaaS business nowadays? Totally depends. If you want to do something really, really simple, it might not cost that much money, maybe fifteen dollars or $20,000. I saw a great SaaS business. I wish I had thought about it. It was so simple. All it does, it's a system I use. It's called Calendar Bridge. All it does is it brings together your Google Calendar and your Outlook Calendar for people like me that have multiple businesses that have to use both Outlook and Google. And, and it's super cheap. It's like $4.99 a month. It's super cheap. It's all in it. It's something you could build with a no-code solution. And I'm sure they've had really good success with it. That system probably cost them 20 grand to get going, I would imagine, including all of the, all the different pieces and support and other systems, et cetera. They could probably do that pretty cheap. Now, I would say most of the time, it's going to cost you somewhere between hundred and four hundred, yeah. including all the people and startup. And I actually have a spreadsheet that walks you through everything that costs. How do you have the spreadsheet? Tell us about it. 
Oh, because I, I run a business that builds SaaS businesses. So basically, if, I, if I'm business dude, I go to Beyonce and say, yo, Beyonce, I, I want a SaaS that like makes the Google Calendar do this. Beyonce gives me 400,000 friends and family. And then I come to your agency and say, yo, I don't want to get a co-founder. I'm just going to hire you guys. Yep, that's exactly the way it works. And although most of the time, they're already on their second or third try, their second or third agency, and they come to us and they're like, okay, well, I've failed multiple times trying to get it done super cheap. And now I'm going to go to the professionals who actually know what the hell's going on. Yeah, that's what happens at our recruiting firm too. Typically, it's like you've had two or three failures and you're like, okay, I'm willing to put some money into it now. Exactly. Jason, what business were you working on when you got the phone call from the private equity firm? And I'm curious as to how luck found you, but also what your what your outlook was and what your professional focus was before you became a CEO. It's a funny story. It's also kind of a frustrating story. It was January 2nd of 2019. We'd just gotten back from Southeast Asia and we ranked number one that one day on Google for so many things having to do with SaaS. We normally get something like four and a half thousand unique visitors to our website per month. Let's give your URL here on the show just real quick so we can all go and experience this. Okay, it's www.jhmediagroup.com. So many of us have a website like this, which is we know a lot about business, we know a lot about software. Come get in touch with us if you're ready for a professional to help you with your business. And is it safe to say that when you talk about having a portfolio of businesses that are a lot of them created in the sandbox of your agency or were they completely capital investments outside of the agency? They were capital investments outside of the agency. Recent ones were capital investments outside of the agency. The agency built a lot of them, but it was funded separately. Interesting. So you can actually basically dog food your own agency by identifying key business partners and raising funds and then using your agency to build the product. Exactly. So you're executing what I think would be a very standard playbook at high-end agency owners, which is using the agency as sort of a capital factory or an engine, yep. a cash flow engine to build more sustaining product businesses. And in 2019, before we get to the SEO story, what was your image of yourself and your company as to how you guys were doing? All right. So this is the embarrassing part. <laughs> horrible. We were doing horrible. And so I went to DCBKK and we just had a really bad year. And I was really down on myself. We had had a couple of really difficult clients. I had gotten sucked back into the agency. I couldn't focus on my other portfolio businesses. They were struggling really, really hard. I had made the mistake of not delegating properly. And I kept letting myself get pulled back in and pulled back in and pulled back in. And because of this, I wasn't opening the doors for the company to be successful. Were you not delegating properly because you didn't have enough money or because you didn't have enough knowledge? I think when you get really stressed out about things, you want to move as fast as you can. And when you want to move as fast as you can, and you're the guy that can do everything, you start trying to do everything. But that has obviously has the, the opposite effect of what you wanted to do. And how many people were on the team in this 2019 vignette? 12 or 15. 12 or 15 in the agency? Yeah, just that agency, just not the other companies. 
and you had people associated with the other companies. So you have a lot of people underneath you at this point. Ballpark about how many people report to Jason? 200. 200 people report to Jason. And you have various business partners under those portfolio companies. Yes. But the portfolio as a whole was not doing well. The agency kept sucking me back in. And I was feeling in 2019, going to DCBKK was the first time I ever really felt like I had imposter syndrome. I really felt like my businesses were failing and I didn't feel like I belonged there. I felt so down on myself. I was so depressed and I was so upset. I really felt like all these friends I had had businesses that were growing so well and doing so well and my business was just failing. We booked a like a mansion in Phuket with a bunch of other DCers and some of the members of my team. And I was so embarrassed to talk about my business. Like, cause we, you know, all these people were getting together to mastermind about this. And I was just, oh, I just felt so bad. Even just hearing you describe the setup with 200 souls and different partners and stuff, it's almost impossible to imagine that it could have been systematized in such a way that wouldn't be enormously at minimum stressful. Which is what drove a lot of the success, actually, is it was not set up very well. And I had to build systems that enabled me to manage everything very well centrally and see the progress of every single CEO, what they're doing, how they're doing, where they're going, understand their strategy, and get a great overview of everything centrally easily. And that's actually my framework I presented at DC Playa. So this was like your V1 was essentially, I got to organize all these portfolio companies and my agency. So there's two different threads of the story. There's your intellectual journey for process and management skill set, and then the story of how the PE firm identified you as someone worth talking to. So you can take either thread. I want to follow both of them. Let's talk about the PE firm first, and then we'll go into organizing everything. Because it, what happened was I started working with the PE firm and then I got to the point where I had even less time to manage my portfolio. And I realized if I didn't put together a system very quickly to manage everything, it was going to completely fall apart. And so that was what drove the building of this entire management structure. So how did they find out about you? It was beginning of 2019, January 2nd, and we ranked number one for a number of top keywords having to do with building a SaaS business. In one day, we had 7,800 hits, whereas we normally do about 4,500 per month. And it only lasted one day. And we got so many calls that day. It was like a Monday, but it was before everybody came back to work. And one of the people that called us was this guy that wanted to build a, a web-based business, a SaaS business, that was a horrible idea. <laughs> and he calls me up and he's like, I want to build this thing. And I remember so clearly telling him the only way this thing is ever going to work is if there's a worldwide pandemic that shuts everything down. Cut me a break. Are you serious? I'm 100% serious. Can you talk about the idea? He wanted to do a, a virtual graduation party. And I told him, I was like, that's the thing that everybody gets together for. Like, People will do this virtually. The only time they're going to do this virtually is if they literally can't get together. And the only way that's going to happen is if there's like a pandemic. That's And what are the odds of that happening, right? 
Classic. I think we've all had a software SaaS business ideas like that, right? Like this kind of consumer niche use case thing that just you kind of think is cool. And so it's the classic business idea. So I'm guessing you're fielding phone calls like this all the time. People are like, hey, can you build my cool weekend idea? We do. Yes. And the all of these, they have to get through me. Or at least when I was working at the business full time, you had to get through me first. If I didn't think your business was going to be successful, we weren't going to do it. And so with this guy, he calls me and he's like, I want to build this thing. I was like, no, you're going to lose all your money. We're not doing it. I'm not going to take your money and, and throw it away like this. And so he comes back like, I don't know, two weeks later. And he's like, well, I have this other idea. And I don't remember what the second idea was, but I was like, no, that's also a horrible idea. I'm not going to build that one either. (laughs) And then he comes back like a month later and he's like, okay, okay, I have this third idea. And that one was a good idea. It, It was a private equity tool, simple tool that did something really important that saved a lot of time. And he's actually going to launch this product probably this year. Nice. In fact, definitely this year. And I said, okay, that's a good one. How are you going to distribute it? And then he says, well, I didn't want to tell you this before, but I'm actually a partner in this really big private equity group. And so we start working with them, doing the ideation and the design work on it. Just UX first. That's one of the things that we always push on. You got to do the design work first. We got to iterate on it. All of that before we actually start touching any code. So your process involves basically building a usable mock-up before you're putting code. That makes so much sense, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, he comes up with this good idea. We start working on it. And he's like, oh, you guys really know what you're talking about. Oh, you're actually pretty good at this. And so he calls me up and he's like, well, I got this one business that's kind of been a pain for a while. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to consult on it. And um, and it was on fire, man. What had happened is that this PE company, they know business really well, but they didn't know this very specific niche business that is highly regulated and has some massive competitors. And they had cleaned up the business a lot. They'd done a good job with it, but it was still failing for some from technical reasons and, and for some in-depth reasons due to mismanagement for years and years prior to them taking it over. And so he said, you know what, we take a look and let me know what you think. And I said, yeah. And I came back and I said, this thing's on fire. I don't know how you're going to fix it. So when a PE firm buys a company, they typically buy it because they feel like they can fix a lot of things about it. Is that more or less why they had bought this company? It's on fire, but we have firefighters. Exactly. It was a really bloated company. They cut staff. They got rid of a lot of these really inefficient people. They had done a really good job of doing that when they took over the business. But there were technical issues that were underlying that they didn't know how to fix. These were some, you know, real foundational aspects of the software. And one, just to give you an example on this, the product was like 30 years old and had never had a designer work on it. It was a very, very, very difficult to use piece of software. And the competitors in the industry had reworked their products for years now. And when they got in, they were like, we don't know anything about this. People are using it. They're paying for it. We don't understand why people are churning, though. And it had a lot to do with things like design, back-end architecture, engagement with customers, that kind of thing, which are really more operational aspects of running a SaaS business. So you're looking at this dumpster fire as a consultant. <laughs> yeah. And what happens next? 
we did a lot of consulting with them and helped them understand where the problems in the business were, which had been opaque to them previously. And they came back six months or so later. I remember really clearly, I was in Medellin. I had this great apartment overlooking the city and I'm looking out over the city and I get this phone call and they call me up and they say, hey, I think we're going to spin off this business, this piece of this business. What do you think about taking it? And I said, no, man, like that's... uh, I'm in Medellin. I'm hanging out with my wife looking over this beautiful view. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, And I think at first I said no, and then I said maybe. I said maybe because COVID was rolling in. I had been through 2007, 2008 when my stuff crashed to the ground. And I was kind of worried about what was going to happen with COVID and the rest of my businesses. And this seemed like something that was going to give me a a nice safety net if if something did happen. And it was going to give me access to to do something I had never done, a lot of knowledge I'd never had. I was going to be able to hang out with with CEOs running multi-hundred million dollar businesses. I was going to have access to the the top level guys of a of a two point six billion dollar PE fund, and see how they manage their businesses, and so for the knowledge, and for the safety, and also somewhat for the money because they did make me a very good offer. I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Monday, Monday, Monday. This Monday morning ignites your business growth with an absurdly high quality hire from Dynamite Jobs. A hire so explosive to your bottom line, you're bound to be bogged down in cash money. To get started, it's just a zero to 30 minute phone call, rocket fueled by the legendary Ian Closen Showin. Watch him risk his reputation with career killing, high pressure sales tactics. Experience live the, let me take that to my finance guy move, the hard sell. And I think I need a chief operating officer. What would change in your business if we could get that done for you today? Classic reversal. Hiring used to be a pain in the ass, but with Dynamite Jobs recruiting, it's scintillating, titillating, profitillating. This Monday, 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 go to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. What? Is the punchline of how higher level business people compare to our community? What are some, I think in our community, we puff our chests up a lot and talk about all the things that they can learn from us, right? Enjoy the view in Medellin, wear your pajamas to work, (laughs) those sorts of things. But it sounds like we have a lot to learn from them as well. And I'm curious as to what some of those things are. We absolutely have a lot to learn from them. There's no room for mistakes. There are no, when you're investing $100 million in something, there's no room for mistakes. You have to know things are going to go right. They go through every scenario and they bring in a team of analysts to make sure everything is going to go right. They run the numbers over and over and over and over. And this is really how I got to be good at doing these financial plans because these PE guys, they really know their numbers. And when you show them a pro forma. What is a pro forma? A pro forma is a projection of what your business will look like financially going out into the future. So this is different from a P&L? It's different from a balance sheet? Yes, mostly uh, a P&L. It brings together your revenue and your costs 
and puts it out. It shows like, this is where my revenue is going to grow in these product lines, in these areas. These are how my cost is going to grow for these kinds of people in these kinds of roles and this kind of area. This is how much, and you have to plan every single thing out, every hire, every cost, every, everything for an entire year going forward. And they hold you accountable. Ian and I do this, we call it a cash flow spreadsheet. Is that more or less the same thing? That's how I was interpreting it when you were talking about it. It is, but it also talks about other aspects of things. So when I think of a cash flow projection, I think of a much simpler model that shows this is where my money's going out and this is what my bank account looks like at the end of the year. Okay, so a cash flow spreadsheet is essentially a way that you can divorce yourself from your bank account to determine how much free cash flow you have. Because you don't want to just simply look at your bank accounts because you're going to get the wrong idea because a lot of that money is not arrived yet or going out somewhere else. So a cash flow spreadsheet gets you to that next level beyond the basic numbers, which is like, how much money do I project to have 60 days from now? Now, you're suggesting that we take it to a next level of sophistication or at least that higher level business people do. Why? What can we then do that I can't do with my cash flow spreadsheet? Let me actually make one recommendation on the cash flow spreadsheet that you do a 13 week. I recommend a 13 week. You said 60 days. I like to have a 13 week, especially on a turnaround. It gives you a lot more clarity as to what's coming. So just a, a quick note there. Like that. So what's the difference between that cash flow and the uh, pro forma? Pro forma is going to show you things like product lines. What product lines are going to grow and in what ways? So you're going to have how many existing customers do you have there? What is the existing average amount per product or per service or whatever it may be per, per product line, per area? How much are you going to grow your revenue per customer and how many customers are you going to grow for each one of these different product lines? So it, you can make assumptions based on these different things. Like the, the assumptions you have about what campaigns you're going to do, how you're going to grow things, that impacts all those different product lines or service offerings. And so you need to know which ones are going to grow more. And then how does that impact the people you're going to need? If you're, let's say you've got some products, like a SaaS product, you're going to grow this product by this much money. You're going to need X number of support people to support that. You're going to need X number of tech services people to support the additional infrastructure costs. You're going to need X number, X amount more money being spent on hosting or what or security or whatever it is. If you've got a service offering, you're going to need a lot more people to support that, uh, but maybe it's going to produce more money or you're going to need additional support infrastructure for it, additional services or additional. Informally in our business, we're not sophisticated, but we call it like belt lines or cliffs. If this revenue reaches like 40,000 this month, then the cost is going to balloon. What I loved about your demonstration was the assumption boxes. Can you talk about how assumptions work relative to the pro forma document. So the entire pro forma is built on assumptions. If you have a set of assumptions that's like, we're going to grow this product line by 3% month over month for the next year, and then 8% month over month for the next, for the six months of the first part of next year, and then 4% for the second six months of next year. Let's say you're going to grow the number of customers by that amount, but then you're going to increase the price at the end of this year by 15%. And so you're going to see this, you know, what that one product looks like by the end of, of next year and how that impacts your cash flow for every single month moving forward. But you're going to do all of that from a simple set of numbers that I usually put mm -hmm. on the left hand side or in a different uh, tab in the spreadsheet 
that says we're going to grow this amount, but you know, this amount, this percentage, this much each month, or it's going to change at the end of this year, at the end of this month or whatever it might be. And then you can just change the percentages because what you'll see is, oh, if we do it like this at the end of next year, we're going to have this big ballooning in cost and support, but we won't actually have enough money to support that. We're going to either have to raise more money or we're going to have to not be able to support this thing. And then you realize, oh, actually in the year one, we're going to have to raise by 4% instead of 3% on prices. If we don't, we're not going to be able to support ourselves. And then it drives questions. Can we actually raise the price by 4%? Can we sustain this growth? It drives questions because that's interesting because one of the bootstrapper or like scrappy entrepreneurial objections might be like, well, these are just assumptions and pandemic and anything. And what do you say to people who say, well, this is quite precious for a business that maybe is only doing 30 or $40,000 a month. Why should I sit down and spend three hours building out a sophisticated spreadsheet to represent financial future of the company? Because what happens if you go six months into your 30 or $40,000 per month business and then you run out of money and you could have made changes much earlier and now you're kind of screwed. <laughs> now, there's another really important aspect of this, though. I didn't really talk about in my, in my discussion. When you're hired as a CEO for a private equity held business, this document, this pro forma that you're building is not just an idea. This is how they measure your success. This is how they just determine if you're going to stay on the business or not. This is your job on the line. And so you have to be very careful about how you put those things out. Because not only does like the GP or the team that's overlooking this stuff have an impact on it, they put this out to all of the, the LPs, the limited partners, all the investors. And if they're off, they get pressure. And, and if that pressure is, if you're off by too much, they're like, cool, you might've done a great job, but you're off on your projections, we gotta let you go. That makes you really, really, really think about that. It makes it so that that spreadsheet is no longer just a good idea. That's what you're going to do. Every single month at your financial meeting with that private equity group, they look at that revenue and they look at those costs and they say, you're off by 5%. Why are you off by 5%? Or if you're off by 10% or 20% or something else, all of a sudden you're getting nervous and so are they. And they're asking you, how are you going to fix this for next month? Because we can't have this. Let me interpret this from the other side of the aisle, Jason. Something that I think is so compelling about your message for our audience and for myself right now is that I have a suspicion that I'm capable of more, that I can be a better entrepreneur. But it sounds to me like you were put in a position where you didn't have the choice, that the view in Medellin all of a sudden was very nice, but the view on the pro forma was what was going to sustain that for the long term. And so you had to get, test your metal financially, like you already had tons of financial skills, but now all of a sudden you were accountable to people with more skills than you. And they were all of a sudden reviewing your work. And it seems like you had to do this with your management skill set as well. I'm curious as to how this transition galvanized the way you manage a team. So let me first talk about the financial side. I was not that strong financially. Before coming into this business, I knew what I was looking at. I knew a P&L, I, I knew how to do my taxes, I knew how to look at stuff, but I didn't know how to put together a pro forma. The kind of pro forma that I would do maybe in the past, I would kind of like kind of half-ass it most of the time versus what you have to do for a private equity firm is completely different. These are two completely different classes of things. 
the pro forma that I have to fill out for the private equity team is enormous. What should we do at 50,000 a month, at 100,000 a month? I think you should do a good job on the basic pro forma. For a smaller business, we'll drive the questions you need to answer. The big ones have a bunch of stuff with different kinds of scenarios. It includes things like revolvers. It includes things like different kinds of debt covenants. And like most small businesses just don't have those things. And so you just don't need to worry about that stuff. How did you upskill so quickly? Is it just necessity or mentorship, books? <laughs> I, I was put into a horrible situation. I had to do it. The company I took over didn't have good financial leadership. And there was, we didn't have any money. It was a turnaround. There was no way to hire a CFO. The financial team at the company did not understand how the business operated. And they hadn't for many years. And there was nobody that was really going to come in and be able to handle this. And so I had to do it. You nailed it. That is the situation I would say 95% of bootstrappers are in. Just because you have an accountant and just because you have a bookkeeper doesn't mean that anybody but you understands your financial situation as a company. And so that's why I think this lesson is really compelling to me. Let's talk management. There was a moment that jumped out during your speech for me. It's showing how to implement traction or different elements of Gino Wickham's framework. And you critiqued a few elements of his framework in such a way that only someone with a very strong understanding of the system could. And for me, with a more cursory understanding and having not implemented it fully, that really jumped off the page to me. That was just like, it was fascinating to me to watch the ways in which you were fluid with your understanding of traction. So maybe you could give us some overview about that system and what you learned about implementing it in the past year. If we didn't put in place a system to drive the company forward, it was going to fail very quickly. This company was six months away from failure, from completely falling apart. It took the implementation of a system like this to make that happen. And I was very fortunate that I had done this multiple times in previous businesses that I owned. And I had done it with limited success previously, only because I wasn't dedicated to really making it work. Was that because it didn't matter that much before or? Yeah, exactly. Now, like all of these people's jobs were on the line. This entire company was on the line. The stress was there. It was real. It was palatable. It, every single day, your back is against the wall. When the going gets tough, the, the tough get going. I mean, I feel like this is actually the place where this team and, and personally where I actually really excel. Because when things get tough, when the stress is there, that's when I'm able to step it up. I was a good fit for this role because of that. And so the what I did to, to pull this together is I read that book over and over and over again. I probably read that book like five times. And I was also really fortunate to have a couple of DCers on the team with me that had also read the book and really knew this stuff. So specifically, Peter Murphy Lewis was really good about this. And he helped me pull all this stuff together. And I had to put together a presentation to take the team through it. And we had to do it very quickly as well. So I spent, I don't know, maybe three or four days build, building a presentation to walk everybody through it, get the team going and, and put it in place and then manage the company using OKRs rather than the, uh, the KPIs presented in traction because I needed a more robust management system for goals. Can you compare and contrast OKR versus KPI? Yeah, a, a key performance indicators. It's what are the main things in your business that, are, that you need to watch to understand the success of the business? Whereas OKRs 
are a more cascading system where it enables you to say, this is the top level goal. These are the things that drive towards that top level goal. Each team is going to have or should have one or more of these key results that will drive up to this main objective. And then you can assign that key result as an objective to another team. And then that team will have key results they need to, to measure and meet in order to complete the key results to, to get that their objective to drive up to the top level objective. And that's how you laser focus a business on top level goals. How did the team feel about this implementation? There was some hesitancy to begin with. This is a team that had been passed from CEO to CEO, from leader to leader, who just had failed them over and over and over again. I, I was actually the sixth, the fifth or the sixth, I think sixth CEO wow. in five years for this team. Every time a new CEO came in, they would chop some heads, they would make some changes, they would move things around, and then really, I think, not accomplish very much. And so when I came in, I said, I'm not going to fire anybody. Nothing is planned for that. And I presented the company back to the team as to how they were doing. And I brought in a lot of methods to make sure that there was transparency with the top level all the way down to the frontline workers, including this week meeting where I present everything that happened this week at the company and anybody can ask any question they want about what's going on in the business. And it was an optional meeting for anybody in the company to join. And it was recorded and sent out to everybody. So everybody felt like they were knowledgeable about where the company was going. And I felt like that made a huge difference in the trust within the business. What does it take to turn around a company? Being able to identify the problems, prioritize those problems in order, make the hard decisions that will solve those problems and continue to iterate on that process. That's why I mentioned you in our meeting last week. I said, we should be talking about our problems and their prioritization in our company at this meeting. Like I can hear about what you did yesterday in an email or a Slack message or a private phone call. But if we're going to get everybody assembled here, why don't we ask ourselves, what are the key problems we're trying to solve? I thought that was an interesting, simple insight that can create a lot of productivity over time. Absolutely. The, the other thing you got to remember is if you're bringing together your leadership team, how much money is that costing you? Per hour, how much money is that costing you? I know on my team, it costs a lot of money. You bring in together these top level people, you're paying $150,000 a year to these people. You add up that cost and the opportunity cost of all the other things they're doing. You're talking thousands and thousands of dollars per hour that you're, you're spending with these people. You have to maximize that. If you don't maximize that, like you're just pissing away money. And the best way to do that is to ask questions about how to solve problems, not just tell, have people tell what's going on. When the CEO gig ends and you say it ended tomorrow and you come back to your empire, how are you going to be changed? Stepping into this business has been like going to CEO school. It has been such an amazing learning experience for me to see the impact of these methodologies that I'd kind of half-assed in the past or that I knew would work, but I didn't really know would work. And having to learn these complex financial systems that I had no idea about before, specifically, by the way, uh, some of the gap accounting. This company that I'm managing reports as if they're a publicly reported company. What do you mean by gap accounting? Generally accepted accounting principles. So when you are a publicly traded company or report as if you are, you have a lot of standards that you have to abide by that you don't normally, as a small business, have to, to think about. Things like 606 RevRet compliance, 
like how you're reporting your revenue recognition, your controls, your checks and balances. You have you get audited on all this stuff. And as the CEO of a business like that, you have to know that stuff pretty well. You don't have to be an expert, but you got to really know, you got to know what they're talking about all the time. And you have to know the pieces of that. And so being exposed to that stuff was really a huge learning opportunity for me. And then also getting the opportunity to fix a lot of the pieces of this business that I had seen working in other aspects of my business, but had never had the need to turn around really solidified that the way that I was doing things was the right thing, was the right way. And that made a huge difference. It made a huge difference in feeling about the way I was doing things and also within the business. So like you're more confident to push those things to completion in the future, even if your Petri dish is smaller. Yes. And the results take longer to come through. For sure. In addition to that, I can look at my portfolio businesses now in a different way. And I can identify problems that I never would have been able to identify before. And I can do it very, very quickly. Like what? In a larger business, you have very specific ways you have to manage people. And when there are problems with people, you have to put in place things like performance improvement plans. And in a small business, you can kind of kind of halfway do it and maybe it's okay. In a big business, if you don't do it right, you can get sued. And you're going to have problems. You're going to have serious problems from that. And so seeing the processes you have to go through to make sure that you don't get sued on those things opens your eyes to different ways of doing things. So for example, there was an issue yesterday that one of the CEOs of my portfolio businesses brought up to me where a project manager and a lead developer were having personal problems. Like they were having a hard time working together. I would have in in the past maybe said, they'll deal with it. They'll, They'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. Now, what I said was, set up a weekly meeting between the two of them without you there and work with the project manager who's the superior in this particular case and explain to him these different methods of resolution, conflict resolution, and how he should work with this person and train him on those things. And then send him to this little short course on how to deal with this particular kind of problem. Then set him up on a weekly meeting with this person where they don't talk about business, They just talk about how to work together and how to resolve the problems that they're currently having. Then have both of them report back to you on a weekly basis about the success of that thing. I would never have done that before. Because you would have been too busy focused on bringing in sales or new product or... Yes, and I probably would have tried to do it myself. That's the other piece. I would have said, well, I'll I'll work with them on it. And now I'm like, I don't have time to work with them on it. This is a way where you, the CEO of this business, can do a minimal amount of work on this, maybe spend 30 minutes to an hour per week on it for the next four or five weeks, and then have the problem go away. And I don't touch it at all. And the problem gets solved. Final double question, double barrel question, Jason. Typically, I don't end the interview this way, but you're in a unique position in that you're in both sides of the aisle now. You've both worn the t-shirt and the button up, and you have an incredible breadth of experience. When you look at the entrepreneurial community, What do you feel a passion for that we should take away from the capital managers, the executives, the the professionals that work at companies with a high degree of transparency to the financial markets? So in other words, more traditional, larger companies. And then the other way too, what do you feel passionate that the folks that are professionalized capital managers and business executives, what do you hope that they could take away from the entrepreneurial community? The first thing I would say is that there's not actually that much a difference. 
that the people like to think that there's a difference because you have this. We have an identity piece. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's an identity piece. These guys wear button ups. We wear T-shirts. I wear a T-shirt to this business every day. <laughs> to this portfolio business, I wear a T-shirt. I don't wear a button up. And I don't think that there's that much a difference. If you're a good leader and you're a good manager of a small business, very often you can be a great leader of a big business. You just haven't been in the position to be given that opportunity. I would say that there is, in the operations side, a higher level of diligence and more knowledge on things like people management and methodologies in the professional managers. But in the CEOs, I think it still takes somebody with vision. It still takes someone to put the pieces together. It still takes somebody that that is agreeable. It still, still takes somebody that that has an understanding of the business and can see the future. And I, I don't think that's all that different. Maybe there's a slightly higher degree of execution that's required at a bigger business, but just because there's more people moving more parts, it's a difference really in many cases. It's interesting. I like the way that you answered that question because maybe one of the themes, we look a little bit different. Every generation looks a little bit different. But when we started, when we were 20, I was on the outside trying to break in, whatever. But now when I stand around at a group gathering of my peers, sometimes I look around and I say, we are the establishment. And just because we wore t-shirts in this particular generation or started our companies in multiple countries with different remote staff and stuff, it's sort of like a slow acceptance of entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship, whatever scale and whatever industry. For sure. So you asked, what should the entrepreneurs take away from this? And what should the capital managers take away from this? The entrepreneurs, I would say that if you're going to manage a bigger business and you're going to make it excel, you have to step up your level of sophistication and management in a lot of ways. Like I said, the CEO still needs the vision. That doesn't change. But your ability to execute on that vision has to be at a higher level. For the capital managers, I think that they have a lot to learn in the way we live our lives. You've got people in the D.C. that are running 50, 60, 100, 200 million dollar per year businesses, traveling around the world, wearing a T-shirt, go into a rooftop party. There's a lot of guys that go into work every day, dress in a suit and tie, that don't believe that that's even possible for them. It's absolutely 100% possible for them if they're willing to make the mindset change. Big shout out to Jason Long, who, like I said at the top, uh, Jason has this reputation in the DC. I heard it multiple times down in Playa. I've heard it over the years. It was many, many years ago we met that he's just one of the most helpful, giving entrepreneurs around. And that is what I love the most about entrepreneurial communities is just people sitting down. It's like, all right, open up the spreadsheet. Let's look at the one pager. Let's hash it out. Tell me what your plan is. Uh, Let's critique it. Let's build on it. Let's get it better and move it to the next level. And Jason is just so, so good at that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, You can check him out over at tangentsolutions.net and jhmediagroup.com. And I hope to have Jason on sometime in the future to talk about software as a service. If you have any thoughts, questions, or anything else really arriving from today's show or anything else, do drop us an email, dan at tropicalmba.com. Our producer, Jane, is jane at tropicalmba.com. We'll have a Q&A show recording tomorrow coming out hopefully very, very soon. 
in that form or in one another. We will be back next Thursday, 8 a.m. Eastern time. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.